we often really crave and hunger community when we come abroad too, because when you have those moments of, I've had moments where I had an amazing Christmas abroad because I had a great um, um, community at the time. And I've had moments where I've spent uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas by myself. And it was just like, okay, do I sit here and cry or do, do I go find something that makes me feel better? And generally I will go find something that makes me feel better and figure it out. Welcome to Global Take Podcast, where we discuss global issues from the Black perspective. Today, we're going to talk about the growing Blackzit movement and what motivates Black Americans to pursue their dreams overseas. In our first Blackzit episode, join us for a conversation with three African-American educators teaching in international schools abroad in Bahrain. Their story is part of a growing movement of Black Americans leaving American public school systems as a result of poor salaries, lack of respect, lack of appreciation, lack of professional development. In fact, from 2017 to 2018, about 79% of public school teachers were white, 9% were Hispanic, and 7% were Black. The average public school teacher in America is 43 years old, a white woman with nearly a decade and a half of teaching experiences. The racial disparities in our country are only growing. So it's really interesting to hear from this growing movement of, of teachers who are black sitting abroad. Let's hear from Holly Dancy, Shania Wright, and Alisa Pinkle today as we discuss the black sit movement and teaching overseas. Okay, everybody has their smiley face on. So thank you guys. I just want to thank you so much for um, joining Global Take. Can you you guys tell a little bit about yourself and um, how did you get into international education and just just talk about your journey um, in this international lifestyle that you're living in? I'm Janae Wright. And um, I have now been abroad for, um, this is my sixth year abroad, fifth, sixth, six year abroad. (laughs) And I have now lived in, um, this is my third country, actually. I've lived in Kuwait, uh, taught there for four years, um, in Guatemala for one year, and now here in Bahrain for one year. And... um, I have no intentions of returning to the USA to teach. Um, I plan to be abroad as long as there are opportunities abroad. I like my life here. So, (laughs) um, and I have been in the field of education pretty much all of my career, uh, 20 plus years, and um, wouldn't trade the walk that I'm walking right now for the walk that I've walked. Um, 14 years prior to the six. So uh, for many reasons, but um, that's just a little bit about me and I'm sure we'll get into the details later. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for that. And uh, yes, Holly. Okay, so this is my fifth year abroad and my seventh year teaching. Um, I've studied at American University in DC, international studies. And I really didn't think that I was gonna be a teacher at all, (laughs) but I joined uh, Teach for America and I did uh, two years of service uh, back in my home state, Pennsylvania, and I'm from Philadelphia. And I started off teaching as a special education teacher at an African center school in Philly. 
Um, but I still felt like uh, something was missing. Yes, I love education, but the other part of my love was what I studied in undergrad, international affairs, international relations. And I really wanted to find a way to combine all of the things that I loved. And really um, the thing that pushed me to leave the States um, and pursue international education, it was a book that the school counselor gave me called Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation by Parker J. Palmer. And it's basically saying like, you already know what you wanna do with your life. Like everything and every decision that you've made uh, leading up until now has told you what you care about and kind of gave you a hint at what you want to do and what your mission or your purpose is in life. And you just need to listen to those things and follow the breadcrumbs and like take a leap. And I knew I wanted, if I left, I wanted to still be making a difference. I didn't want to go directly to international schools because I felt like I was selling out or leaving my students because I was working in inner city, leaving my right. students behind. <laughs> So I was like, what can I do? What can I do? And of course, um, I started to look into Peace Corps and I made my decision to um, serve and I thankfully got accepted and I was selected to join Peace Corps Rwanda where I met Alex and I was there as a teacher and a trainer for two years. Um, after Peace Corps, I didn't go back home. <laughs> I ended up in UAE and I worked in Abu Dhabi teaching um, elementary school English language arts. And then I ended up coming to Bahrain where I'm teaching um, secondary English language arts. And I also helped to start the service learning program at my school. So that's just a little bit about wow. my path and how I got here. Okay, okay. And, you're, and, you're, and this is, you're gonna stay out for a couple of years. Oh yeah, I don't really have any intention of coming back. My family always joke, oh, when are you coming home? I'm like, I'll come home to visit. But <laughs> as far as living, no thank you. <laughs> okay, okay. And uh, Arlisa? Well, my name is Arlisa Pinkleton. Arlisa. And um, I've been teaching for the last 13, 14 years. I was an engineer prior to this. I had a whole career as a space shuttle engineer. And then I became a school mm. teacher. And I did that for a while. And then I got really frustrated. I was teaching uh, college before I came abroad. And I got very frustrated with the US teaching system and decided to, as I call it, cast my teaching bread upon the international waters. And I um, accepted a position in China for my first um, international position in China. I was there for three years at an international school in Ningbo. I really um, liked China. When it was time to go, it was time to go, but I did enjoy, enjoy being there. And I left there and moved to Guatemala. I stayed in Guatemala for two years as a math teacher there, and then um, moved, relocated to Bahrain. Just, well, I guess in the middle of the pandemic, not really before the pandemic, we accepted the position <laughs> before the pandemic, but then we didn't come here until September. So I've been here now for, mm -hmm six, seven months, I mean, whatever amount of time since September. And just like Holly and Shanae, I don't really have any intention on returning to the United States to teach. I don't have any intention of returning there to live. If As long as um, circumstance allows me to stay abroad, that's what my plan is. I don't have any desire to return home to live and um, not even visit as much as I used to. I used to visit very regularly and um, 
And I don't really feel a strong desire to even do that at this point. So uh, that's kind of my story. I teach math. Um, I mean, you know, basically I've become an international educator. I have a, a math business. I just wrote an ebook on, um, so you want to teach abroad, you know, just kind of to invite others to come into this lifestyle and to support those who are interested in the Black sit as it pertains to education. So that's where we are. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you, ladies. That was um, very insightful um, hearing you guys' stories. And um, so one thing that struck to me is like you guys are definitely all in the education field, but um, you said, Alisa, that you had no I had a common thread of teaching in America. Can you kind of like discuss, um, Alyssa, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Alisa and Shania, Alisa uh, and Shania, about the difference between teaching in America and teaching abroad and how that kind of drives you to just want to stay abroad and teach as opposed to teaching um, inner cities or just teaching in America, in any American public school. <laughs> Well, I'll go first. Um, this is Alyssa again. I feel like, uh, you know, I've always been a math teacher. So in my whole career, I've taught math and I've seen um, different, um, a different desire, I want to say, for education in different places. So I felt like, you know, in the United States, it's like you wanted to, um, put a lot of weight onto the teacher and not so much on the student being a responsible learner, um, mm -hmm. you know, and taking and learning for themselves, but really a lot of the weight was put on the teacher to make sure that you teach the kids and that if they don't make gains and all those things, it comes, it falls onto the teacher's shoulders. I mean, I taught in the inner city of Charlotte and I taught eighth graders and eighth grade was, is a gateway year. And I had taught uh, there, but a lot of pressure was put on me to make sure that these inner city students who had a menagerie of other issues were going to make gains in their math class, but they had a lot of other problems like they had, you know, homelessness, they had, you know, just a uh, a huge drug addict problem. And it was a, all these kids were coming to school with all these other things, yet I was tasked to make sure that they made mathematical gains, like significant ones. So it's not that, you know, really my teaching abilities weren't the only thing that was, that was you know, being tasked. It was whether or not they were, um, I won't say able to learn, because I believe everyone can learn math, but whether they were in the position to really take in the knowledge and then be able to regurgitate that when the time came. There was, it was a very high stakes situation. But when I compare that to when we go, when I've been international, and it's been a little different depending on where I've been in the world, but I have seen that the desire or the appreciation for education has been different in different places. So the role of the teacher, I have had a different level of respect given to me as an educator when I've left, when I left the United States. I had people who really appreciated the teacher's input, who would do the things that the teacher, you know, that I as a teacher would say they were willing to put in the extra work or put in any work, the work that was required in order for them to make gains. And all the pressure wasn't put on me. Yes, I was given the task of teaching the students, but I wasn't given that task in, in the midst of all these other behavior issues and all the other things that follow on. I, it, it wasn't unrealistic. And I felt like sometimes the expectations in the United States for the teacher were unrealistic. 
in, you know, pertaining to all the stuff that you had to deal with in addition to teaching the students. More than half a million students and their parents were dealing with the first day of a huge teacher strike in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Hundreds of schools are closed this morning in Oklahoma and Kentucky, where thousands of teachers plan to rally at their state capitals. To Chicago now, where teachers in the nation's third largest school district walked off the job today. As many of us as possible, we're gonna to go to the Capitol and we will rally. Several of us are going to stay at the Capitol as long as it takes. Wow. Wow, and we'll just say that kind of like drove you away or just kind of, once you, once you discover um, greater pastures overseas, did you say that kind of like, it was just the, um, the tipping point or the, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, to want to stay overseas? Well, once I, just you know, once I, well, yeah, the respect. The respect was the biggest piece. Um, when I was in China, the the teacher is like, you know, you tell people that you're a teacher and it's like, oh my goodness. And then when I told them I taught math, it was like I was next to Jesus. Like, <laughs> you know, like a, a math teacher in China that was from America was unheard of. But okay. um, I mean, it was, the level of respect was great. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't unrealistic. And I, you know, what didn't want any undue respect to be given. But I feel like what I do what I've learned to do is an art and that I know what I'm doing and I want that skill to be respected. And in the States, I just didn't, basically teachers feel like they're very dispensable in the United States. Mm. And you I know, feel so. like part of that may be like the connection between performance on high stakes testing and funding <laughs> because yeah. internationally your funding, like this school is private, the school that we work at now is private owned. And like, yes, you have to perform, but it's like, you know, you're not going to have a lot of the same consequences, sure. that domino <laughs> effect if you don't, if students don't mm -hmm. perform at XYZ level and things like that. And uh, it may not even be the same level of testing happening in the country or they may not, I don't know. So I think maybe that may contribute to it as well. But I, I don't know. I, I hear what you're saying, but I feel like in some ways we're still very dispensable abroad as well, but for different reasons. I'd agree with that too. As far as Black people, I think we are very dispensable to a different kind of dispensable, but yes, I would agree with what you're saying. And I guess if I had to chime in, I would definitely say I agree with what um, Alyssa said in terms of um, just teacher accountability um in terms of and parent support um that we see abroad versus um in the u.s and definitely it it varies as you go from country to country um there certainly um can sometimes be a great level of respect for an educator because as Alyssa said the way she was received in china is pretty much how I was received in Kuwait. Um, there was just a great um, desire um, for children abroad um, to be in mostly from Kuwaitis and being at international schools, a lot of time you're interacting with a great amount of cultures, countries. I mean, my school in Kuwait, there were 39 different countries represented. So you can't just say the Kuwaiti people, but it was people from many walks of life in many countries, but they had a great respect for education. They had a great respect for their children's educators. It didn't matter, you know, um, what their 
status was. And most of the time we were talking about children who were very privileged and um, families who were very wealthy, but they had a respect for teachers. They have a love for um, and a respect for what we do and what we bring to the table. And they um, generally want their children to achieve academically. So they have um, put a great deal of investment into their teachers. We, I've been at um, private schools each time um, in three different countries, but you still see sometimes the variations of just how teachers are perceived, how they are received and how um, uh, from a parental standpoint, from an administrative standpoint, how um, certainly we have expectations that we have to be held to, but I've never felt like um, testing or assessment or um, any of those things were directly related to how I was going to get paid or if I was going to get um, a um, stipend or an increase or an increment. So there's a oh. difference in that regard, um, mm-hmm. but just um, an accountability, I think, is what I see um, more so and what I appreciate more so, whereas I believe Alyssa said it, that as teachers, we are constantly expected to produce, 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 but there's very little accountability on the part of students and sometimes parents. Um, we're expected to work these miracles. Um, I too worked in Title I schools. I've worked in inner city schools. I've worked in public, private, charter, um, now international schools. Um, I've worked in a couple of different states in the U.S. too, to be exact. But just from what I can remember, there was always um, this expectation for teachers to just produce magic um, for students who may come to school hungry and all they were worried about is a meal for that day but you're trying to shove content into them and trying to be not just their teacher but the counselor their nurse I teach elementary and um, I've taught early childhood so you were the teacher you were the counselor you were the mother you were Mm -hmm. helping them to learn how to use the restroom Uh, you were (laughs) helping them to learn how to put their clothes on and um, various things and there's always this expectation from the teacher but Oftentimes, um, it's like they're dropped off at school, work this magic, and then they go back home. So in that regard, I don't feel the same amount of pressure or um, expectation. However, I still want to provide the same care regardless of where I am. So, um, And then just many times the level of creativity that we're able to have, whereas you're um, often given a script and you have to teach to this script or that thing. Um, I found in certain countries and at certain schools that you were just able to really uh, be your most creative self in addition to teaching the content. So um, in that Mm -hmm. regard, that also adds to why my desire to um, return to the U.S. is extremely small at this point. Because it sounds like the parents, like in a private school, you're investing your own money. So of course, you're going to be more interested in making sure your child produces and, mm-hmm. and plays a bigger part in their educational um, experience as opposed to the, having like in a public school where it's free, the teachers are going to be there. Can you kind of discuss a little bit 
it kind of sounds like it's a little bit cultural as well. Like, um, can you just can you kind of discuss a little bit about the difference in private school education in the U.S. versus over abroad, and why abroad is still a better choice for you? Um, well, I've taught at private schools in the at a private school in the uh, in the U.S. and private schools abroad. Um, I wouldn't even say so much that the difference is in the the private U.S. versus the private international, but the the pack and the care for the teachers is what is different. Um, just being an educator abroad, first of all, I feel valued because you um, saw, saw me as valuable enough to bring me to your country, meaning schools pay for that. Um, then they provide housing. Every country I've been to, my housing has been provided. When I'm in the U.S., I'm working with whatever that salary is and having to worry about housing and all of those things. Um, our medical benefits are taken care of when I'm in the US. I'm having to, from that same salary, take care of sometimes astronomical medical insurance. And um, so I think for me, the package is the package of what we receive internationally is more of what the difference is, um, mm -hmm. because from what I've seen with private schools in the U.S. and private schools here, that part is not that much of a difference, because, of course, anytime someone is paying for education, there's a level of expectation that mm -hmm. comes with that. Um, right. So I think, think the the difference is more how we are handled and cared for as educators is where the oh. difference lies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Holly, you had something to add there? Well, I was just saying, I don't think that um, parents in public school care less about the right. education that their child receives. I just think that just like the ch their children, they have a lot of other things that they have to focus on. Like they may not right. be able to do these after school things or do this or do that, or be as involved because they got to go to work. They have to do this. And they're, you know, depending on us and trusting us enough that even though they can't be as present with their with the child's education that we do what we have to do. So I can't say that they don't care or they don't, you know, so I won't say that, the, you know, it's lack of accountability for parents so much. So I don't know. And I haven't taught at a private school in the States, but I went to one <laughs> and okay. I can really say like I, I didn't have many teachers that look like me at all. <laughs> throughout mm -hmm. my experience, um, which was would have been more impactful too. But I feel like, for example, in this region, in the Middle East, in the Gulf specifically, it's a lot of us out over here teaching at some more, I guess you can consider elite schools, um, then we get the opportunity to do in the States. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know many teachers, many Black teachers um, that are teaching at those elite uh, top private schools in the US at all. But I feel like we have more of a chance to do that abroad. I mean, we're native English speakers, we have these degrees and this background. And I feel like that's more appreciated outside of America than it is in America. Um, mm -hmm. Like we get opportunities. I mean, granted, it this still is, you know, you go to the, the international schools, and there's still less of us there than it should be. I can say that but we do get opportunities, I think, to teach in these type of schools more so than when we're in, in, in the States. Um, international living and travel. And I think it's changing now, but it just really hasn't been a norm. And you know, the stereotypes about Africa mm -hmm. and stereotypes about the Middle East. <laughs> like, 
So all of those things go unchecked uh, until they have somebody who knows and who can testify about the the life there. So I kind of feel like, yeah, in a sense, as a Peace Corps volunteer, they always talk about how you are an ambassador for the United States at large. But I feel like we really are ambassadors for our family and our community who don't get the opportunity to see things and experience things. So kind of carrying that. I don't take a lot of pictures, but I will take some so I can show my family, show the young, the, my, my younger siblings, my nieces, my nephews, my little cousins to show them this is something totally different than what you maybe have experienced. And you know what? You too can go off and you can see the world too. I didn't have experiences like that. I mean, my family, we went on trips maybe when I was in like middle school, high school, I think it's first, we went on a cruise, you know, just like Alyssa said, we went to the Bahamas. We thought we were doing it. <laughs> But never never really to really go to these other places. Um, So for me, yes, it was emotional in a sense of like, wow, I always dreamed of doing this. And my family knew because, you know, international studies major and everything like that. They knew I wanted to do to and I had studied abroad. So I did leave the country before for extensive time during this during college. But um, going to Rwanda was going to be my longest time outside of America. They had this big party for me and everybody went around the room and like just kind of spoke life and blessings over my new my journey. Um, and that was kind of like something that stayed will stay with me forever because it was like very healing. Like people, who, people, friends you may not have seen for a while, people who you did not think that you had an impact on speaking over your life and speaking to you in such a way. It was like very empowering and it was like a like a send off and uh, you know, I had thought about that during my times abroad when it was like kind of difficult. Um, Peace Corps is not easy. Like, you know, you think about community, like you'll be the only one in your community. And sometimes you just can't be bothered to try to integrate, as they say, in the community. Cause it just, for example, language barriers and cultural difference and everything like that. So you really have those moments where you just say, oh my God, why did I do this? Why did I? Um, yeah, so I think I'm starting to ramble. But <laughs> wow. I do I do want to say, though, that, that being abroad, depending on where you live, you do, you can, uh, again, find yourself as the one and only or one of a few. I mean, when I was in China, we didn't see a lot of Black people. Um, And when we did see black people, many of them, most, the majority of the black people we did run into in China were from Africa. So we did, there wasn't a lot, there are not a lot of black Americans where we lived. And I lived in a, you know, a tier two city, which was pretty large. Shanghai, you would see a lot more expats of color, um, Guangzhou. So certain areas you would see more expats of color, but that was not the norm. Uh, Same thing for Guatemala. Uh, We were, you know, they had hired three or four of us. When I got hired, there was two other Black girls who were also from the States. And then they hired a couple more, two or three more the next year. But we just were definitely a small core nucleus group. Um, And again, I won't really go into the conversation of just because somebody looked like you don't mean they for you. So even though you want to feel like you've got this group, you feel like we're all the same color and kind of all from the same place, you kind of think that there's automatically a connection, but you can't really make that leap all the time. I mean, you have to give it a minute to just really check out and see. But then being in Bahrain, because we're in the Middle East and this does, there is a Navy base here 
So there's a lot more Black Americans that are here in Bahrain. So the first time I went to a function and there was maybe 30 different Black people of all sizes, shapes, and colors. I was like, I thought I had gone to heaven. You know, I was like, wow, all in one place and not the United States. Uh, so that was definitely <laughs> that was definitely a, a new feeling for me because generally we've been, you know, we've been the one or two. My husband and I have been the couple. There might be one other couple, maybe. There might be another single person. Generally, we see a lot more single women than you see single men. If a man is there, he's hmm, usually the female. Women are traveling, seem to be traveling alone more so, or a woman with her children. You see that um, periodically as well. But yeah, I mean, Joe, just being out abroad doesn't mean you're going to go find your, your people. You may or may not find your people. Demonstrations over the death of George Floyd spread across six continents over the weekend. Chants of Black Lives Matter echoed from thousands of protesters in cities around the world. They were voicing anger not only at racism in the U.S., but also in their own countries. Okay. So think, speaking on that, like, uh, can you guys tell me, like, what we speak on, speaking on your people, like, can you tell me, like, what you were doing during the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests and how did that make you feel abroad and just that whole emotional experience and were you protesting in Bahrain or wherever <laughs> you I mean how did you what was your state of state of mind and then how did that make you feel about returning home? Me? Well or any you of you guys question. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Just well I can start. It was uh definitely tough. But it, we were still in school because we don't finish until like yeah, the end of June, yeah. like the 28th or something like that. So uh, we had just come up with a break and it was just, I just, I'll speak about um, when the protests reached Philly, like, and they really got serious. I had stayed up all night, like following the news. I kind of felt helpless. I had family and friends that were out there um, protesting in Philly. So I was like very nervous, concerned, because can, I can see what's happening. Um, and I was like, you know what? I can't go to work. I can't not work tomorrow. So I had sent an email to my, um, administrator and they basically was like, you know, I know that this happened, but I don't advise that you take a day off because you know, this stuff happens all the time and it's not going to change. So, you know, why don't you use this as an opportunity to talk about civil rights? Um, and I felt totally like my experience totally invalidated by this uh, person. So I kind of went off a little bit on them. And I was like, I didn't ask permission, but I'm taking my day off. <laughs> and then <laughs> the next day, you know, I read the article, I forget the, the exact title, but it was basically talking about, you know, during this time of Black death, you need to be aware of what your Black employees and colleagues are going through. And like, we are working through some horrible situations yet like and you need to be aware that yes we are experiencing this and we still got to have the liberals we're experiencing this we still got to teach our lessons we still got to function and work during this time and like really be considerate um i had sent that out to that all the admin team at my school basically like listen like if somebody comes to you and says that they're being affected by this like you need to listen and validate that and not immediately invalidate and Try to tell me I shouldn't, and I should then, when I'm telling you I need to take a minute, I should then have to go and teach a lesson about it. Like, is that right? So I sent that article to the uh, admin team, 
basically saying like, you know, this is what's happening, be mindful of this. And maybe we can use this as a jumping off conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion in general at the school. And I got several different responses from them. Oh, like somebody just was like, oh, thank you for bringing it to our attention. <laughs> that was one, the other one was like, you know, this such and such happened in Palestine and nobody is talking about that, like trying to uh, divert the conversation to something else. And then, um, Kind of like just kind of like ignoring or you know not paying attention to it and then um because i didn't get much of a response i kind of had other white colleagues you know send some emails to just to see what was going to happen like they were agreeing with me about what should happen and i'm like all right well y'all agree you agree to me talk to these people tell them right what right. you know make suggestions and you know nobody responded to me about having a, a meeting or a discussion nothing until one of my white colleagues emailed after uh, after I requested that they do. And then they wanna start a, a DEI conversation to the committee. And um, we met and it was like an awful meeting. Like, oh, I got I got so like berated during this meeting. Like, all you care about is uh, black issues. And I'm like, no, I can only speak from my experience. Well, I literally got to all lives matter in this meeting all lives matter, not just black <laughs> lives matter. Like literally, like, are you looking at the news? Are you listening? I got told this during this meeting. Um, and then they ended up praising the white counterpart for bringing up the issue and giving solutions, even though I had sent resources because I'm a part of diversity collaborative with ISS, International School Services. And they had sent out this resource about like black DI practitioners and trainings. I had sent that. They probably they didn't acknowledge it or look at it, but this lady sent stuff and they were praising her. Anything I said, they were like, no, but she would say the same thing. And they were like, yes, exactly. And they <laughs> ended up making her the head of the committee. They made a committee after this conversation. And then they made her, the, this lady, the head of it. And um, long story short, because the, the committee uh, has failed now. Like we have a committee. And, you know, but we haven't met, like we met once or twice. Um, I created a survey to gather some data on how we can improve. And I just felt like I didn't want to be the bearer of the <laughs> of this this committee. And I'm like, it should be something that's wow. institutional and not just, it's not my committee. It's not my issues. Cause I'm like DEI in general at the school is an issue. But I felt like it would have been on my back. And I just didn't feel like carrying that in addition to what I always already have to carry. <laughs> I didn't want to carry something else. And I feel like this was just a checkbox eventually to just check off and say, oh, we did this. We started a committee, but it was not, it's not really functional or doing anything. Um, so that was my experience during that time and kind of now. Um, it's hard to be in other countries or working with other people who don't get it. Um, you know, people talk, try to derail the conversation and talk about other things and, or use like, oh, their ignorance or their other country experience. Like, oh, this doesn't happen in my country. I'm sorry, I didn't, I don't have this experience. Like they say something that's offensive. Oh, I'm sorry. In Europe, we don't have racist issues, which is totally false. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so having those experiences, yeah. having to deal with that, sometimes it's tough. Um, because you don't have, you don't always have another person in the room, another black person in the room to be like, what did this person just say to me? You know, because that happens. You have that connection. You'd be like, hold up. <laughs> what did they just say? And to be that, per to be the person, 
and to, to experience some some things like that is hard. So I was having a tough time um, during that protest season. I just felt like my experience was just so denied and invalidated and nobody cared. Thank you so much for listening to our first Black Sit episode. Interested in hearing more about these women's international journeys as teachers abroad? Tune in to our next Black Sit episode where we continue this conversation on international education. <laughs>